when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to Unstacked and Let's Unwind with award-winning author Sarah Gailey. Let's find out about the writing process and the latest gothic novel, Just Like Home. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. And I'm Sarah Gailey, and I am so excited to be here. Can you Perfect. introduce our listeners to uh, Just Like Home? Sure. Just Like Home is uh, my most recent novel from Tor Books, and it is the story of a woman who has to return to her childhood home to care for her dying mother and confront the legacy of her serial killer father. It is very dear to my heart, as scary as I know how to make it, and hopefully will keep you up at night. It is, it's like got a continual unsettling feeling of discomfort throughout the whole novel. The lines of the good versus evil are blurred, especially for Vera Crowder, who her name, by the way, is like the most awesome name ever. Oh, and, <laughs> and the feeling of unease is throughout the whole title. So how do you keep that unsettled feeling within the novel? You know, I, I had so much fun writing this one because I got to really ground it in the sensory. This was a novel where I sort of was saying, okay, how can I describe things as intimately as possible? And I think one of the ways to make someone feel unsettled is to take that feeling of intimacy and make it unpleasant. So I would find every moment where I was kind of trying to bring the experience of the book closer into the, the reader's experience of their body and then say, okay, but what if that felt so bad? <laughs> one of the more, it's weird that I'm about to say this, this statement, but one of the more sympathetic characters in the book is, is Francis, who, who is a serial killer. <laughs> How do you go about building empathy for, for characters such as Francis? Oh, oh, I love this question. It's that's such a tricky one because I I try to build empathy for all my characters. I truly believe that there's no such thing as an unsympathetic character in the same way that there's no such thing as an unsympathetic person. You know, every every human being is a human being, every human being deserves humanity. And I think part of the discomfort people feel with Francis being one of the more uh, kind of relatable characters is that he really should have the kind of air of mystery and distance that we like to have when we are, are confronting someone whose actions are kind of undeniably horrible. For him specifically, you know, this whole book is written very much through the lens of Vera's experience of people and things. And so the things that she has felt safe around are the things that I tried to build a sense of affection in for the reader. And, you know, for her, part of the, the tension of her entire life is that her father, who is a horrible, notorious serial killer, is the person who made her feel most safe and loved in her life. Um, whereas, you know, other people and things that should have made her feel safe didn't. And to kind of play off of that, uh, you, you're just like home has such poetic verbiage, which is detailed and visual. It reads well on the page and narrated out loud. How do you work on description and use of your words? Because it's just enough. It's not over describing anything. It's not like, 
you know how some some will just describe and describe and describe. You know, it's like the perfect amount and um, it's very visceral. Thank you. I I had so much fun with it that it's like, it, it always is really nice to hear when it's landed well, because I think uh, I, I always worry when I'm enjoying myself a little too much in the writing that I'm going to let it get away from me. I always come back to A.B. Guthrie uh, and what he said about how to write fiction well. He said that the key is a constant undercurrent of the unexpected. And so in my descriptions, I'm always just looking for that. I'm always looking for a way to say something that my reader maybe hasn't heard before, but has felt often, a way to describe something that usually gets taken for granted, that usually we consider to be a neutral. And so like, why would you even need to describe it? Um, Which I'm sure bothers some readers who prefer sparser prose. (laughs) Because I'm sure they're like, okay, but you really don't need to describe that. And I'm over here like, oh, but I I will. (laughs) And that reminds me, I used to be a display coordinator for anthropology and the, I don't know if you've seen the, the display windows for anthropology, the clothing yeah. store, their, their line was to make the ordinary extraordinary, which kind of lines up with, with your motto as well. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> kind of building off what she, she said and, and how you were talking about trying to make it as intimate as, as possible. I came into this from a, from an audio perspective because, you know, my time to read is, is, consumed by driving. So I, I, I've got to do it by, by audiobook at, at this time. Do you find that there is a difference in how you feel your work comes across when it's being just read from the page versus how it's being narrated? I mean, I, I, I can, it, like she was describing that saying it was visceral. I can think of specifically about like the, the scene where Vera wakes up in the closet and she's dealing with the hole. And just talking about, and I, I'm, you know, I'm sitting there just driving and I'm like, well, okay, this is, this is making me uncomfortable. This is making me uncomfortable. And I just started thinking about how that would have changed had I been reading it or not. Yeah. I think there's a huge difference between the experience of reading a book with your eyes versus reading it with your ears. Exe Sands is the narrator who I got to work with on this one. And I mean, what a brilliant narrator. I'm so fortunate to get to work with them on multiple books of mine. And I mean, first of all, I think that for me, at least, and I think for a lot of readers, listening to a, an audiobook kind of slows you down a little bit as a reader in a really beautiful way that makes you engage with every single word that, that is on the page. When I personally am reading, I skim sometimes. There's some books where, you know, I'll find certain parts upsetting or tiring or repetitive and I'll sort of let my eyes skip over the page and absorb the vibe of what's happening without really sinking myself down into it. I think especially for horror, listening to an audiobook makes it so you can't escape those visceral upsetting moments. You can't go, oh, this is a little too much for me. I'm gonna just maybe read every other word or I'm gonna turn the pages pretty fast. Instead, you sit there and you linger in Exe's beautiful narration and sort of are forced to experience the whole thing, which I realize I'm making this sound somewhat unpleasant, but as someone who loves a scary, visceral, uh, upsetting reading experience, this is all intended as big compliments for Exe's work. There was a quote I grabbed from you, and you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm reading into the tone here. So I, I, I think I understand where you're coming from with it, but I want to kind of expand on this. Uh, you said uh, you've been through a lot of emotionally difficult things and a lot of how you process that is through your, your writing, which is super healthy and emotionally sustainable, which I think is sarcasm <laughs> there at the end. Yes. Um, so how much of your uh, real life do you tend to put into your writing? Ooh, ooh. Um, on the one hand, a ton, and on the other hand, not hardly any. I tend to put the emotions and understanding of my life and the things I've experienced into my work, but I'm also uh, quite reluctant to reference actual real events that I have experienced in my work. I've never put real people from my life into my work with very, very few exceptions. I really try not to reflect myself representationally in my work, but instead thematically. And what was your research process like for Just Like Home? Did you study house construction, serial killers, gothic narratives? Where did you begin? Oh my goodness. I did a more research for Just Like Home than for any other book I had written before it. House construction definitely played a big part. I I always think this is a very funny thing that happens to me in my writing where I kind of think I know how something works until I start writing about it. And then I realize, oh, I don't know how that works at all. And you can see that a little in some of the, the description of the house as it's as it's built. I was like, no, I sort of know how a house works. It's like a bunch of rooms, they're all together. And then I kind of had to take a step back and go, oh, I have no idea how to construct a house. Fortunately for me, uh, the house in Just Like Home was built by someone who didn't have a lot of experience constructing a house. And so he screwed some things up and didn't do a perfect job. She left me a little bit of space for not knowing <laughs> how to build a house. But I had to do a lot of that. And, and since the house is so prominent in the book, I also had to learn how to describe parts of a home that I didn't, I've never thought of the name for. For example, all the parts of a chimney have different names. All the parts of a staircase have different names. And I'm trying to get really in detail on this house and how people are interacting with it. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's that it's that thing where you go from one room to another and there's like a doorway, but no door, but it's a really big doorway. What, what do you call that? Uh, the other thing I got to do a good amount of research on was biomes of upstate New York. This book takes place in upstate New York. Um, I have visited and spent time in upstate New York, but I'm not from there in the way that I am from the places I'm from, which gives you a real sense of what's around, what grows, how the seasons really interact with the plants and animals of the, of the region. And those details I find really ground a story in a place. And so I got to do a lot of great research on just the ecology of upstate New York and how it would inform the atmosphere of the story. Were you able to do any in-person wanderings in upstate New York for that? Unfortunately, not during the writing process, but I drew a lot on the times that I've spent in upstate New York, especially in late spring, where the humidity is like, it's like if a theater curtain got completely soaked and fell on top of you, which is why I wanted to set this in upstate New York. I wanted a really oppressive, humid vibe for the entire thing. Like you're standing inside of someone's mouth. Um, I just think that it was the perfect location for that vibe. Expand on locations like that. You, being a South Florida, Southwest Florida native, how, how did you choose Cape Coral? Because that's such a random place down there. 
this is kind of a peccadillo of mine, I think, in my stories that no one has ever asked me about. I will pick kind of an area that I want something to take place and then spend like two or three hours just scouring maps for small towns that have interesting names. And I knew that I wanted Vera to have been spending time in a place that was far from upstate New York, but that someone might reasonably say, yeah, I can probably drive home from there without it having to be something that you plan a ton logistically around. And you can say from Florida, all right, well, I'm going to drive to upstate New York and it's going to be a long drive and it'll take you a couple of days, but I've done a similar drive on the West Coast. And so kind of know how that works and how uh, spontaneously you can make that happen. And so I said to myself, okay, so it's going to be Florida. I also really wanted Vera to be in a place that is sort of friendly to unmoored people. And I think Florida is very friendly to people who have uprooted themselves and tried to find someplace new to be. And so I said, here's the region I want to be in. And then I spent a really long time looking at maps of South Florida and saying, okay, what place has the vibe that I'm looking for in the name? And Cape Coral just really leapt right off the page at me. (laughs) I grew up about 60 miles south of that. Oh my goodness. (laughs) We do a lot of research when we're coming into this and I I found a comment, I'm, I'm thinking it was by your publisher where they talk about how one of the ways to get you to do something is tell you that you can't do it and that you tend to try to prove them wrong and fast. <laughs> yeah, that would be probably for my agent, Dongwon Song, who is a very dear friend of mine and unfortunately kind of has the keys to my brain. Dongwon often will get me to do something that will be beneficial for my career, but that I'm kind of scared to do or don't think I'm ready uh, on a craft level for by saying, okay, well, if you don't think you can, that's fine, which is like the worst possible thing to say to me because it's even worse than someone identifying that I can't do it. It's them just accepting that I've given up, which immediately activates the stubborn engine that lives inside my skull. (laughs) So in this case, from what I understand, you had said that you didn't want to write a novel. They're too long. um, They sound scary. And yet here we are. Yeah, I, I believe my exact words to Dongwon at, at that time, I very, very clearly remember that conversation where everyone I know who writes novels seems miserable 100% of the time. So I will never do it. <laughs> Dongwon, again, very cleanly cut right through. That was the first time that they ever did that to me. And they said, all right, well, if you don't think you're capable of writing a novel, that's okay. And you don't need to do it. Magic words. I am incredibly easy to manipulate in this way. <laughs> So what, besides just the challenge, what changed about the mentality of it? I mean, obviously you don't seem miserable, but we're, we're <laughs> catching on the back end of the, pro- the process too. That's true. Yeah, you, you, my poor beloved partner has to sit next to me while I'm writing because we share one big desk and sees the miserable moments. But um, it's not miserable 100% of the time. And I really got to learn how fun it is to stretch out. A novel gives me so much room to explore stories and characters and to play with language and form, I have gotten to get so much more adventurous with what I try to kind of unspool in novels. And I think I've really found that novels are the place where I get to talk about what I think the human condition is in a really 
drunken, rambling, 3 a.m., well after the dinner party should have been disbanded kind of way. Building off that, what is your writing and editing process like? Very structured. I, at least with long form work, I outline quite heavily. Um, I have a series of spreadsheets that I use to make sure that I have all of my plans organized. I try to approach with a very rigorous sense of like, what do I want to accomplish? What do I want to say? What do I want the story to be? What are all the characters doing at any given time? What's the balance of the characters on the page? And then I inevitably take a step back from that spreadsheet and say, this is terribly boring. I'm accomplishing nothing with this plan that I've laid out. This will be dust from a lint trap on the shelf. I cannot possibly do this. It will be a nightmare and horrible. And then I stomp around my house for a few days saying I'm a bad writer and I can't do it. And my partner very patiently says, okay, so it's day two. So we've got 24 hours of this left. And then I'll go, Eureka, I just need to do something a little bit different to make this a tiny bit more interesting to me to write. And then I dive into the draft. I tend to follow my outlines pretty closely for the first third to half of what I'm writing. Then I'll hit a point where I go, oh, right, the thing that I set up doesn't work even a little bit the way that I thought that it would work. So I redo the outline. Um, and then when I finish, I go back through, I do a big editing pass, and then I either send it to my editor or my agent and find out what they think. I usually don't edit for a very long time. I keep a document as I'm writing that keeps track of all the changes I know along the way I need to make. Like a lot of those changes come from me wanting to write a line that I think will sound cool. And then realizing that I need to like make that line make any sense in the context of the book. And then I need to go back and be like, okay, well, I guess this character has a thing about teeth so that I can write that line about teeth later. And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of the meat of it. It involves quite a lot of lying on the floor of my office, making kind of uh, pathetic wailing noises until my partner brings me a snack and says, get back to work. <laughs> I've enjoyed all the titles of yours that I've read so far. So a little bit of fangirling, Magic for Liars. Oh my goodness. I really enjoyed Ivy's character having the modern noir and then Upright Women Wanted. It's a Western. There's badass librarians, which what couldn't you like about that? And then Just Like Home is a gothic horror. Your genres are so different. So, but it's your distinct voice. Is there a genre that you haven't written yet and you would want to? Or is there a genre that you tend to lean on? Ooh, so this is actually a very, it's a very tricky question that I was thinking about a few months ago as I was starting to draft the novel I'm working on now, where I was going, you know, I, I do have this thing where I don't like writing in the same genre multiple times, and I've sort of painted myself into a corner of like, what genres are left? I would really love to write more nonfiction. I do write quite a bit of nonfiction. I, I write essays, and I enjoy them so, so much. I also, it's one of those things where I'm very aware of how much I don't know about the form and about the that world. And so it would really be me taking a leap into something that I don't spend a lot of time in. Um, I also would be so excited to learn more about poetry. I have always really loved poetry, reading it and writing it. And it's the same thing where I'm like, ooh, but I would be really, really jumping into a whole new world there. 
in terms of genres I lean on, I have spent quite a lot of time in the pulp Western genre, um, American Hippo, which is the series that kind of started me out is pulp Western. And then so, of course, it's Upright Women Wanted, which I think I just feel great affection for the genre. And I love writing in that voice. I'm looking forward to your poetry and nonfiction. And I just love how nonfiction has had a lot more fun lately. I mean, there's such a fictional style of writing within nonfiction that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I'm really crazy about, you know, the kind of like cross genre memoir Mm-hmm. Nonfiction books, uh, Why Fish Don't Exist is one of my favorites, or H is for Hawk. And again, I'm, I'm nowhere near the craft level of those authors, but I just look at them and I go, wow, it's amazing to see what's possible. You know, it's amazing to see what can happen in the world of this kind of writing. We, we kind of talked about how real life can and doesn't affect your writing looking at it from a perspective of us looking in at you, how much do you think people can learn about you as a person from from reading your works? What a terrifying prospect. (laughs) Uh, I think, again, both quite a lot and not much at all. I mean, I, I put so much of myself into my work and every now and then I will, I will do an event or an interview where someone will ask me an extremely pointed and specific questions that I'm like, have you been reading my diary? Like, how did you know this about me? And at the same time, the things that I put into the work are things that I I think will be in conversation with what's inside of my readers. I hate the word relatable because I think that it often is used to flatten existence into like a white cis heterosexist, like HGTV experience. But I think that there are emotions and thoughts and feelings that a lot of us have inside of ourselves that we kind of don't look at or speak to or take care of a lot. And I spend a lot of time looking at those in myself. And so I try to reach out to my readers in those emotions and in those experiences and say like, hey, what about this thing that you don't think about? And I think that readers can learn a lot about me in that sense from reading my work. And even listening to another interview, you're very thoughtful in your character building and what you want it to say and what you don't want it to say. I've really enjoyed learning about that process. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And engagement with readers. I have been loving following your Instagram and for um, Just Like Home, you kind of treated the house as a real house. And what if you did Halloween there and would you go and trick or treat? Um, So I'm going to flip that. And if you could live in any of your, your novels and worlds, which one would you select and why? You know, I feel like with the exception of American Hippo and Upright Women Wanted, which again are pulp westerns, I kind of write my novels as though I do live already in the worlds where they're happening. The Echo Wife is a science fiction book, obviously has a little more advancement in technology than we have today. The other novels that I write, I'm really trying to ground in the world that we live in and make it feel like they could happen here like around the corner from you there could be a magical high school that you just don't know about the same way that I don't know the name of the middle school in the town where I live and the same is true of when we were magic my young adult novel it it takes place very much at a contemporary high school and of course just like home 
I wouldn't want it to happen because there is a serial killer brutally torturing and murdering people. But one could easily imagine, oh, there's a, a small town that had a scandalous, terrible history I never heard about. And it just so happens that there's still things going on there today. In terms of which book I would most like to experience, I think it would be When We Were Magic, because that one is a little gentler and kinder than my other one. <laughs> we promised some fun here. So one of the things that we like to do is we like to play a game that you might know as something else, but we, because Sarah won't let me say lots of curse words, we call it Kiss Mary Ditch. Excellent. I love this one. I play it with my friends all the time. So I'm going to give you some categories. So that way you don't know what you're choosing from here. And then once you pick your category, you'll know, I'll give you the three things that you've got to like, love, and get rid of. Perfect. So, so the categories that you get to choose from are spooky, scary skeletons, goodwill hunting, you're so vain, and did you get that thing I sent you? Gotta choose spooky, scary skeletons. We're going to talk about haunted houses. Excellent. The Winchester House, the Lizzie Borden House, and the Amityville House. Like, love, get rid of. All right. I think I'm getting rid of the Amity House um, just because there's like a level of ongoing chaos there that I, I, I don't personally invite into my romantic or platonic relationships. I could like the Lizzie Borden house. I think we could be friends. I think that, you know, we could have sort of a cordial colleague type relationship. And then I am loving and wedding myself to the Winchester house. I just love the staircase to nowhere, as is evident in a lot of my work in progress manuscript. <laughs> Goodwill hunting, you would have had to talk about vampire hunters. You're so vain would have been strictly vampires. And then did you get that thing I sent you would have been hippos. Oh, wow. Wow, I feel like I chose correctly. I feel like I picked a good, a good category. One of the things that Sarah was talking about following you on Instagram, I, looking at the Twitter feed and going back through the, the marathon writings and, and kind of treating your writing process as, a, as you would have like a, a physical workout. I just kind of wanted to talk about what you learned from that. I mean, you, you, I, I read your, your blog post talking about how you're now looking at your writing differently and how marathon writer writing isn't sustainable long-term, but lessons that you pick from it that make you a better writer. Yeah, so the, the writing marathon was sort of one of those acts of frustration on my part. I had some mental health and physical health setbacks this year that put me way behind on deadlines and I, I have seven planets in Capricorn. I cannot stand being late. I can't, I can't bear it. And so I sort of went enough already. I need to dive into the deep end of this work and just do it. And so I decided to do a, a 12 hour writing marathon, 8am to 8pm, just straight through no admin, no communications with people as much as I could get done that day. I told my partner ahead of time, this is what I'm going to do. My partner said, if you must, and sort of prepared like the mattress under the window for me to fall onto as I was escaping the burning building of the workday. But I ended up doing this writing marathon in a public facing way on Twitter, inviting people to join me. And when I do stuff like that, I spend a lot of time trying to make sure that other people are taking care of themselves. Um, something my therapist loves about me is my tendency to completely neglect my own needs while centering other people's. She said it's cool and fine and I should keep doing it. 
And so I spent a lot of time being like, hey, make sure you're stretching, make sure you're getting water, make sure you're eating. And reminding other people to do those things had the side effect of making me do those things for myself. And I ended up not feeling nearly as physically and mentally destroyed as I frequently do after a long day of writing because I was taking care of the body that my brain lives in, not something I'm historically swell at. And I ended up doing this writing marathon again a couple of times. And each time I did it, I found that when I paid more attention to the needs of of my body and I treated the writing as something that my entire self was doing, not just my brain, I felt better. I felt more alive. I felt more like I could continue the work. I think a lot of us have a tendency to sort of imagine that we are plugging our brain into the computer and doing a bunch of work while our body's in stasis, which is just not the reality. Our bodies need stuff. And um, these writing marathons really taught me a lot about that. And also about in general, sort of the rhythm of working while disabled. I'm disabled in a pretty ongoing, not going to change serious way um, that will keep getting worse for the rest of my life. And there's just unless something big changes in the field of medicine, nothing to be done about that. And so my approach so far has been, well, I'm going to imagine that I'm not disabled and try and do the work the way that I would do it if that was true, which in hindsight, not the most brilliant approach to anything. And these writing marathons made me realize, oh, my working rhythm is different than it was before I was doing with these physical limitations. There's instead of taking the approach that a lot of people do, which is You need to have a steady rhythm. You need to work kind of the same amount every day. And maybe you'll have little ups and downs, but not big ones. I need to accept that I'm going to have big ups and downs. I'm going to have days where I push really hard and get a lot done. I'm going to have days where I can't do anything. And although that's, it's difficult to come to terms with change, figuring that out has made me a lot more satisfied with my work because I can recognize that I'm working the way I work. And actually it's pretty darn good. Does working with individuals, like uh, connecting, because writing is a lonely kind of process. Do you find that it's helpful to to have a community working with you to make it semi-less lonely? Yes and no. I'm, I'm extremely devoted to my friends and community. And on kind of a broad scale, having them working with me is extremely important to my process. On a more micro immediate scale, like co-working Zooms and stuff like that are very unpredictable outcome for me. Sometimes a co-working Zoom will be the best work day I've had in months. And some days all I can do is just stare at myself and the other person. And I'm like, well, there's faces on my screen. I find that that second thing mostly happens when I would rather do anything other than work. (laughs) When my brain is like, I will not be making words today. I would rather jam a fork into an electrical socket than do that. Working alongside other people offers ample opportunity for distraction for me. And there's a blurring in several of your titles where the main, what the main character sees themselves as versus what others would see that character as. Like even Ivy and Vera would be two examples of that where like Ivy in um, Magic for Liars, she was 
she was a mess, but she kind of saw herself as like very put together until the, then you like reveal where, oh no, she was not put together. She was <laughs> kind of like avoiding that. I don't know if was there, is there, um, can you share a little bit more about the complexity of characters? Yeah, I I think that so many of us see ourselves very differently from how other people do. I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine uh, where the question came up, do you do you consider yourself a private person? And I was totally flabbergasted by this question because I was like, oh, I've, I've, that's never really occurred to me before. It's something to think about. And my friend and I talked about like ways that we know other people perceive the other person. So I was saying to my friend, oh, I've heard other people say that, you know, you are very private where my friend doesn't consider themselves very private. And I think this is the case for everybody. I think we all have our own internal ideas of ourselves and how we move in the world and what other people can or can't see of us. I think they rarely line up with other people actually can or can't see. This is kind of goes together with your question about how much can people learn from me based on my work? You know, I think that on the one hand, other people are extremely perceptive and we often don't give them enough credit for what they can see. And on the other hand, people bring a lot of assumptions to interactions. And so we'll read into things based on their own personal lens. And that's sort of what I bring to these characters is what assumptions are other people going to bring to these characters? And what do these characters think they're getting away with that they're really not? Oh, I enjoy the complexities and even watching, I don't know, uh, the Indian matchmaking show, like there's a few of the characters where you're like, oh, you totally think you're someone else, which is so yeah. fun to watch. <laughs> <laughs> like... Oh, I love watching reality television with this exact <laughs> lens in place of what do you think you're presenting to the world? Especially now we have, we're in this kind of meta age of reality TV mm -hmm. where people go on to, for example, like uh, RuPaul's Drag Race knowing that there are archetypes and narrative foils that they can become and try and fit into. And I love watching and going, okay, so who are you trying to be on this show? Who do you want people to think you are? And what are people picking up that you're not trying to put down? That was fun. <laughs> going in a, a similar but slightly different direction. Just like home deals with a family dealing with the repercussions of the fallout of, of the matriarch being, or the patriarch being a, a serial killer, and the the murderabilia that goes along with it. Uh, we are in a time where, just looking at Netflix top ten right now, there's at least three in the top ten that's dealing with stalkers or serial killers or or what have you. I know I I have my own stories with with murderabilia in a way. What does that say about us that that we're so obsessed about it? Oh, I think it says a lot of things. I think one of the things it says is that we are highly susceptible to propaganda. There is a lot of money and power put behind making sure that, uh, especially Americans, believe that we absolutely need the police and the FBI and that we need to give them money and that we are in danger at all times. And that if we don't give the police and the FBI lots and lots of money to keep us out of danger and keep villains from hurting us, then we will be susceptible to them and, and we'll all be in awfully big trouble. I grew up in kind of the golden age of forensic procedurals, the, the CSI boom um, that led to so many investigation shows. And on the one hand, 
very cool, led a lot of people I know into fields of scientific inquiry. On the other hand, led a lot of people to firmly believe that, you know, we have got highly sophisticated technology making it so that complex but ultimately good guy will find a hair at the scene of a horrible but really interesting to look at murder and use that to find someone who might murder me. Oh no, I don't want to get murdered. So I think part of our fascination with true crime is kind of an extension of that, an extension of this propaganda machine that leads us to believe that these kinds of crimes and most crimes in fact are very interesting and complicated and require special highly funded geniuses to solve and prevent. And I also think we just, as creatures, have a vested interest in staying alive. And so while we grieve death, we're also fascinated by it. And while we abhor violence, we also can't look away from it. And when one of us does violence to another one of us, we desperately want to understand why, and we want the answer to be really complicated so that it can be far from us instead of being something as simple as, well, that guy really hates women. To segue into something completely unrelated to that, we are in November, which means that we are in NaNoWriMo month, and you seem to be quite the champion of it. Uh, I I saw a pep talk that you kind of gave to people, so tell us about NaNoWriMo, what it means to you. (laughs) That pep talk was so fun to write. I love I love finding ways to encourage other people in their craft. I love inviting people into writing. One of the things I love about NaNoWriMo as a concept is that it encourages people who might be intimidated by writing to bring everything they have to it. Why not? You know, what do you have to lose? You'll spend one month trying to do something. I personally uh, have not participated in NaNoWriMo in a formal way, in part because the NaNoWriMo pace is kind of generally the pace that I keep with my work. And so formally participating in it doesn't quite scan for me, but I have supported a lot of friends through NaNoWriMo. I think NaNoWriMo is the thing that at first gave me the impression that everyone who writes a novel is miserable because every November, a lot of my friends would be like, writing a novel is so hard. But I, in the time since I've been writing more, have seen a lot of friends and colleagues of mine sort of have their first adventure with writing through NaNoWriMo. And I think that's just so cool. What is a typical writing day like for you? Ooh, I can't can't remember the last time I got to describe this. Okay, so I wake up, um, I, because of the nature of my disability, I usually wake up in quite a lot of pain. So I spend an hour to an hour and a half working from my phone in bed Um, again, very healthy, sustainable activities, waking up and first thing you do being looking at emails and uh, exposing your brain to a kind of laser array of blue light. It's really good to do. And just nobody tell any healthcare professionals in my life about this podcast. I get out of bed. um, My partner or I will play with and then feed our kittens. We have two kittens. Um, They're fantastic, very high energy. And first thing in the morning, extremely demanding. (laughs) And then I will sit down. If I have meetings, I try to have them in the morning so I can knock those out of the way and do a couple of hours of admin. The the work of being an author involves a lot of administration. And then I'll open this horrible nightmare of a spreadsheet that I have that has every single deadline down to the day for my entire life. So it goes back to like 2014 or 2015 and forward currently into 2024. 
and I'll find today and it says, what do I need to have done by the end of the day today? And then I'll jump in and work on that thing. Um, usually I work in like one to two hour bursts and I'll try to in between those, like get up and move around get snacks, get tea, get water, or I'll completely forget to do those things. And then sometime in the afternoon, I'll turn to my partner and say, why do I hate everything and everyone? And she'll say, because you didn't eat lunch. Uh, I often take about an hour off in the middle of the afternoon to go lie down in a dark room and kind of just not exist for a little while. I'll just have blob time, which I beat myself up about for a little while until a friend of mine was like, hey, that just sounds like a lunch break. It just sounds like you're you're taking a break. Is that what you're describing in these like very self-deprecating terms? And I was like, oh, right. That's just a thing that you should do. Um, so highly recommend. And I usually am working from about 8 a.m. to 7 or 8 p.m., at which point I knock off for the night and have dinner with my family. Oh, that sounds lovely, especially cats and tea. It is lovely. And I the work setup that I have, I'm at this big desk with my partner and there's two big windows behind my computer and I have two big like padded shelves on the windowsill for the cats to sit on to look outside because otherwise they bother me nonstop all day. And so there are frequent breaks during the day when the cats, you know, come down off the windowsill and look me in the eyes and say, <laughs> you have to pet me or I am going to tear this house apart, um, which is very, I think, very good rhythm for uh, remembering the important things, which is petting and paying attention to the cats. Of course. It matters I, I, so much more than the work that I do. <laughs> I've got to ask this because as information specialists, this is kind of where we, we live. You mentioned, a, a, a is this a particular project management tool that you're using? Is it just an Excel spreadsheet? I, I got to know what kind of database we're talking here. <laughs> oh, I'm working all over the place. I've got, so a lot of my kind of, a lot of the more nightmarish um, data management that I do, I do in Google uh, Sheets, which is very streamlined because I don't need a lot of the Excel functionality um, for the sort of information management that I'm doing there until the moment that I do. And then I feel like I'm going to tear my hair out because it doesn't exist. I also use Airtable to track things like I have a database of every name I've ever used for character because I don't want to reuse names for characters. When I first made that database, I was like, wow, I really have used the name Bert like eight different times and coincidentally happened to name one of my cats Bert. So I'm like, it's, it's important to start managing that kind of data early, guys. Um, and then I use a software called Favro to track sort of more administrative to-dos. I work with an assistant who helps me keep on top of things through that software. Cool. You, we're talking right now specifically about the, your, your novel, Just Like Home, but you have done other things. You, you have some comic works behind you. You have some comic works in front of you. And uh, you mentioned uh, the American Hippo series, which was more no novella style. Which do you enjoy more, novels, novellas, essays, comics? Oh, I, I, I love all my children equally. Uh, <laughs> I, oh, we're all saving I, one child when the fire breaks out. We know this. Oh, yeah. You know, I think in terms of just enjoying the drafting process, I think I find the most joy probably in writing comics just because I bring so much more of my personal sense of humor into my comics writing. My comics are kind of where I make myself laugh. 
my novels are where I rip out pieces of my soul and examine them and say, where is the blemish on this and how can I reveal it to people? I also, I, I also really love essay writing. I love feeling like I'm just directly in conversation with my reader that way. That said, I find them all equally rewarding. So the, the kind of excoriating process of the novel, um, the personal flensing of the essay are maybe not as fun, but I love doing them. And I, if my publishers are listening to this, I don't want to stop. <laughs> Talking about the comics, you have written comics in a shared universe. You've done Steven Universe in the past. We've got Buffy coming up. Uh, what have you found the most challenging part of writing other people's intellectual property? Ooh. You know, it's so much fun for me because I really get to, I get to streamline my process a lot. Um, you know, I'm really, I'm working in an existing universe. I don't need to describe what the characters look like. I don't need to invent settings. I get to work with things that already exist. But it can be very challenging to know that I'm writing for an existing fandom. You know, for example, I'm writing the Buffy comics right now in a multiverse series called The Vampire Slayer, where... Uh, Willow has taken Buffy's Slayer powers and memories from her. And I was setting out to write this and look, you know, laying out my plan. I, I planned the first 12 issues all at once and was in a position to go, okay, how are the people to whom this series is important going to react to this? And what fandom conversations am I going to touch when I write it? I don't run in fandom circles. I, I don't know a lot of the big sweeping conversations that people have had. I saw someone recently say what we really need is like a fandom Supreme Court so that when a question comes up, like, um, hey, has anyone ever considered could Willow be the Slayer? You can look up the previous rulings of what the fandom landed on and what those conversations looked like. And that's the hardest part. That's the part that lives in my head most while I'm writing you know, I'll have an idea that I think could be really cool. And then I have to consider what that idea might mean for people to whom their existing conception of a character is very important. This came up a lot, actually, in this current Buffy series that I'm writing, because I did a multiverse in which Xander is queer. Um, he is, for people who aren't familiar, the a male character from the show who is central to the core friend group of the show and who is a really challenging character to connect with as someone whose worldview strongly conflicts with the worldview that informed his character writing, especially as it concerns masculinity and the role of men in society. And in trying to figure out how to engage with this character, I sort of said, okay, what would happen if there was some early intervention? What would happen if in this character's life, sometime in the first few seasons of the show, someone expressed care for the parts of this character that he is suppressing and neglecting and that are hurting. And I was like, oh, what would happen is that he would realize that he's queer and striving and struggling to uh, represent an ideal of heterosexual cisnormative masculinity that he thinks people need from him. And so I'm writing a, a queer character who in the original series is an extremely toxic male character um, and instead writing him as queer and quite happy. And taking a look at that plan, I was like, okay, so a lot of fans are going to be really into this. 
And a lot of fans are going to wish that I would climb in a rocket ship and get sent to the moon and never come back. Am I comfortable taking that risk? Am I comfortable risking alienating some fans in order to invite others in? And that is a huge, a huge challenge for me, especially as someone who really desperately wants to invite as many people as possible into story. And what are you currently reading slash watching? Oh, okay. Uh, I'm watching a couple of things right now. I'm watching Interview with a Vampire, which is so much fun. And I'm watching the Chucky TV series. Don Mancini's new series is really fantastic, really excellent. Currently asking a lot of questions about what it means to have come from an evil context while wanting to be good. I didn't connect with the Chucky series for a long time because I just was like, well, it's a killer doll. How complicated can it be? And ended up watching a series of uh, kind of recap and examination videos of it with my partner around Halloween that made me realize how much love and care has gone into both the creation of those films and the sort of treatment of the cast and story throughout most of the franchise's history and how deeply and desperately queer the emotional core of those movies are. And I was like, holy heck, like where where did this come from? So I started checking out the show. It's very cool. Asks a lot of really fascinating questions about gender and the self and identity while also bringing kind of that delicious horror comedy, Pretty Little Liars tone that you want from a show about a killer doll. And I also just am, I am such a nut for practical effects and the practical effects in this series and in this show are bonkers good. The puppeteers, I think, need to be celebrated on like like a civic level. Um, and so I'm enjoying that a lot. In terms of what I'm reading, I just finished Now Is Not the Time to Panic, which is the new Kevin Wilson book um, about some teens who are sort of aimless in the 90s who create art that causes uh, hysteria in their small town. And it is a beautiful book. I love, love, love his work. And this is no exception. It's, it's, he brings such a complicated lens to characters and history and events that, oh, it was fabulous. I've only read The Family Fang so far, and I loved that one. So I'm gonna, this one sounds similar in a way with The Family of Artists. So I'll have to add it. And I have not seen Chucky yet, even though it's a classic, but my friend, she grew up in the same high school and we went to college together and she had a Chucky doll. It went to college with us, but it never made it to campus. So I don't know where it went. Oh, so that's my yeah, only it's Chucky still out there somewhere. It's still out there somewhere. <laughs> so my wife and I had checked out the, the first episode of Interview and, you know, we, we don't, we don't have the, the AMC plus thing that, that it required us to have. We, we got to see if you shudder or what have you. So it, the first episode hooked us. Is it worth getting the, the, the service? I would say so. I personally do not love the need to sign up for a different premium service for every single TV show. So if, is it legal for me to say this? I think it still is. If you know someone who has a login that they can share with you, strong recommend. Um, but it's, a, it's an excellent show and it, again, brings a very interesting and complex lens to the story that I think has been mm, not there in some previous 
conversations the author has wanted to have um, with the story. Also some really interesting examination of race and family dynamics. I, I have been quite enjoying it. Yeah, I was hoping that they were going to move them all over to Shutter, but it seems like that's not going to be their, their choice here. And unfortunately, A, A plus doesn't give me my live Shutter, which I want. <laughs> Heartbreaking. I know it is, isn't it? First world problems. One of the questions that we we have asked since the beginning of our, our, our podcasting here is, what is the strangest thing in your search history? Kind of gives us a hint of what might be coming in the future for you. What is the strangest thing in my search history? Can coral polyps stay alive in the human bloodstream? Oh, ew. It <laughs> <laughs> goes back to the visceral. <laughs> I can feel them. <laughs> What's this. the answer? Very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone wants to say no. Okay. Everyone, every, a lot of people are like treating this as a hypothetical and they're like, that's stupid. Of course not. Nothing can stay alive in the human bloodstream, but lots of things can, can and have stayed alive in the human bloodstream. And there are a couple of cases of people trying to use coral to regrow bone. Um, coral creates a structure that can serve as a great like organic lattice for tissue to grow on. But the problem is that once coral starts growing, it doesn't stop growing and it doesn't grow in the directions that you want it to grow. It grows in the direction it wants to grow. And there was one guy who like, he tried to have like subdermal implants on top of his head to grow into horns. Very cool plan, but they grew down into his brain instead because coral wants to be in like a live, you know, biodynamic environment. I think biodynamic means something different than what I think it means. I think I just used that word for the vibe just now. Anyway, which tells us that coral can stay alive inside the human body. There's also the guy who, one guy injected mushroom spores into his blood and almost immediately almost died, ended up in a coma. Cause like, don't inject mushroom spores into your blood, you maniac. It's <laughs> um, crazy. But the reason that he almost died is because he got a systemic fungal infection inside his entire body. There were mushrooms growing inside of him. You've got cases of people accidentally inhaling seeds and the seed sprouts inside their lung. I think we have a lot of hopeful longing for the idea of the inside of the human body as an inhospitable place for foreign life. And it is truly not. <laughs> I'm so sorry that you have this information now. <laughs> Uh, this, this is what I live for, the, the rabbit holes that I will now fall down. Enjoy. <laughs> and we are a library podcast. How have libraries impacted your life? Oh, comprehensively from, from start to finish. I spent about half of my early childhood in the Alameda County Public Library, where my mom spent a lot of time. And I would sort of wander off and be a feral little creature among the stacks, finding bugs and staring at the carpet and pulling every book off the shelf I could reach to see if maybe it had like something in it for me. I spent so much time in that library. It really shaped me a lot as a person. And then of course, in my career as an author, librarians are one of the champions of my work. Librarians are one of the champions of access to information, which is a something I'm very passionate about. Librarians lead a lot of members of my queer community to better understandings of themselves and their resources available to them. 
librarians have helped loved ones of mine get jobs and access to resources to housing and healthcare and where they can get food and where they can get clothes and shelter. As someone who deeply loves community, of course, librarians are extremely important to me. And I just want to thank you for the work you do. Thanks. I can tell you that they are doing that championing for you. When I first arrived at this particular library, I was working the front desk and one of my coworkers, we were talking about alternate histories and they were like, well, you need to read this book. It's about you know, <laughs> an alternate history dealing with hippos and, and stuff. And I'm like, going, okay, okay. And, and you know, it, it kind of, they, they, they championed you well. <laughs> that means the world to me. So as we kind of wrap up here, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Gosh, I mean, the midterm elections happened yesterday, and so I've got my little my little head stuck in go vote mode. The thing that I would want to share with listeners is just a reminder that you can get through your day, that you are a human being and not a working machine, and that you deserve the very best things from this world. It's perfect. I, I can relate and being kinder than to others and myself as well. I feel like I'm like, oh, take a break. You need it. But then me, I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to work, you know, seven days a week. And <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, that's the joy of being me. I'm mean to everybody. So it's no different than the- <laughs> <laughs> that's the better way. Yeah. Yeah. But we really appreciate having you on. This has been wonderful. And I, I'm looking forward to your newest uh, graphic novel coming out, Know Your Station. That sounds amazing. So that's I'm January so or uh, December. December. Okay. December. Okay. I'll, I'll add that to my, my read list a little sooner than I thought. Wonderful. Thank you so, so much for having me on today. This was a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure for us. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us on Unstacked. Just Like Home is available in the library collection for checkout. It can also be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Check out their website, sarahgailey.com. That is S-A-R-A-H-G-A-I-L-E-Y.com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.